Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Psalm 138. Psalm 138, which is a psalm of David. There he writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So far, the words of Scripture. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 123, stanza 1, asking for God's blessing as the word is to be preached. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, a summary of Christian doctrine, and we find ourselves this afternoon on uh, in Lord's Day 10, that's on page 525 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 10, there the question is, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by His providence? We can be thankful in, in adversity, excuse me, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in His hand that without His will, they cannot so much as move. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we have the opportunity to study what I would describe as one of the most precious, powerful, and foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. 
It really is all three of those things, precious, powerful, and foundational. It's foundational because uh, this, this doctrine, of course, is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. It's foundational because if God is not sovereign and powerful over all things, He ceases to be God. That's, it's, that's what it means for God to be God. So this is foundational. It's powerful because it's life-shaping to know that God is sovereign over all the things of our lives. Uh, this is the doctrine that has empowered the saints throughout the centuries to, to go forth into some of the most threatening, even the most terrifying uh, circumstances, or to face the most unthinkable odds and to go boldly and courageously forward because they knew that God was sovereign over their lives. And it's precious, it's a precious doctrine, as so many of you know, uh, because it is this doctrine that has steadied us in the most turbulent times of our lives, has calmed us in the most distressing moments of our lives, has given us patience in the worst adversities in our lives, and has enabled us, as we are now, to sing God's praises with hearts full of the knowledge of God's love, even in the midst of, yes, many joys, but also many adversities. So it is, it is precious, it is powerful, and it is foundational. Uh, there are a couple of reasons, then, why it's really important for us to study this doctrine and to think our way through it uh, for our growth and for our maturity. Remember, that's our purpose as we work through the Heidelberg Catechism, to, to grow in maturity, to reach uh, Christian uh, wisdom and, and maturity, to, to know God more fully, to love Him more deeply. Uh, so there are a couple of reasons why it's really important for us to work through this doctrine. Number one, uh, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is for many people uh, one of the hardest Christian doctrines uh, in, the, in, in Scripture to accept. Uh, that's not because it's not taught clearly. It is taught very, uh, very clearly in Scripture. But it's one of the most uh, difficult doctrines to accept at an emotional level, uh, because it leaves us with very difficult questions. Like, uh, if God is sovereign, why does He allow so much evil to happen in our world? And that's, that's not just a theoretical question. It's not just something for, for the philosophers. Uh, you, you look at the, just the footage of the latest hurricanes, fires, and floods, uh, and the unimaginable suffering that people go through in this world right now, and we think, how? How does God let that happen? Uh, and it's, those, are, those are what you might call natural evils. Uh, there are also what philosophers would call moral evils, the evils carried out by people, from some people against other people. Is God sovereign over that? Uh, the, the answer from, from Scripture is unequivocally, yes. But you can understand this is an emotionally very difficult doctrine to, to accept. So that's one reason why it's really important to work our way through this. It's hard to accept. And, and also, it's important to work through this because the knowledge of God's providence will make all the difference for your life and your walk of faith. Uh, for how you respond to the trials and adversities that come your way. Uh, you will face trials, and suffering. 
every one of us will, and many of us already are. And how you respond to those trials depends entirely on what you think about the sovereignty of God. Uh, knowing that, uh, that all things come from God's fatherly, loving hands makes all the difference. It, it turns uh, suffering into something that is purposeful, something that you see God's hand in and are willing to work through for, for good. Uh, trusting in God's providence in adversity uh, and drawing near to Him in struggle can be those moments when our faith grows the most if we know that these things come from our Father's hands. Uh, So, if that's our purpose, to grow in maturity, to grow in understanding, uh, this is a doctrine we must uh, understand and think through. Now, the Apostles' Creed doesn't devote a separate line to the doctrine of God's providence the way it does with creation. Uh, But it is there in the words, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Uh, Almighty uh, means that God is both able... To do all things. He is mighty in all things. Uh, There's nothing impossible to God. But it also means that God is sovereign uh, in all things. He is mighty over all things. Uh, That everything that takes place in God's creation traces itself back to God's power and God's purpose. Uh, He is mighty over all things. Uh, The doctrine of providence is also directly tied to the doctrine of creation. Uh, These are are actually inextricably tied together. Uh, When we confess that God created all things out of nothing, uh, we are recognizing that there's a fundamental distinction between creation, uh, excuse me, between creator and, and his creation. That he stands outside of and over and above his creation, that God exists without needing anything to support his existence, but that we exist by the power of God. Uh, Creation has a beginning, and creation is also sustained and upheld in every moment by its creator. The Catechism gives a, a good definition of the doctrine of providence. It says there, God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and governs them, so that nothing comes to us by chance but by His fatherly hand. There's two main elements in that uh, definition. There is the upholding, God upholds heaven and earth, and the governing of all things. Uh, So the first is that God upholds the universe, which is to say that uh, everything continues to exist because God sustains its existence. Uh, Psalm 104, verse 29, says, All creatures look to you. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Uh, So uh, God not only created the world by His power out of nothing, but He also sustains the world in every moment by His power. This is where Scripture presents us with a very different God than the God of the deists. Uh, Deism teaches that God created the universe, but He created a self-governing entity. Uh, This is the watchmaker God who who built the whole universe, wound it up, and and then let it tick away all on its own according to its own natural laws. Uh, To many people, this idea of God is attractive. 
uh, because it, it creates a distance between them and God. It's not a God who's involved in their life. It's not a God who, who holds them to account. He, he holds himself at a distance. But that is not the God of Scripture. From, from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture, God is deeply, intimately, immediately uh, involved with his creation. Uh, you think of Psalm 139, which we uh, sang earlier. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's not a God who's far away. It's a God who's immediately very near. Uh, God is intimately involved with his creation. Uh, you think also of the words of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 17, there Paul was in Athens. He was speaking to the Greeks. Uh, and, and they too had gods, like the deists, gods who were far away. Gods who were always at a, at a distance. Uh, you could build houses for them and worship them in their own temples. But they were somewhat contained within those temples. You leave the temple, you're also leaving that god behind. Well, Paul says, that's not the god uh, who created this universe. He says in that, in that chapter, "...the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself..." Here's a definition of providence right here. "...He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." There's a God who's very near, who's very involved. Uh, again, he, he, he actually continues. He says, uh, he, This God made from one man every nation of mankind to live over all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is involved in, in human history, directing, guiding, governing, uh, that they should seek God and, and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, he says, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. There's a definition of God's upholding, God's sustaining. Uh, they're very profound words. In God, we, we live, we move, and we have our being. Without God, we could do none of, of those three things. Uh, so in God's power, we live. We, he gives us our, our every breath our every uh, heartbeat. And yet at a deeper level, it is, it is by God's power that we can even move, uh, that, that the atoms and the molecules of which we are made uh, can interact, can function the way they do. That too is by God's power. Uh, and at a deeper level still, he says, in God we have our very being. Uh, without God's sustaining power in each and every moment, you and I would cease and this universe would cease to exist. We are made, as it were, of the Word of God and upheld in every moment by, by His power. Uh, the words of Colossian, Colossians 1 says it well as well. Uh, he is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Uh, that's the difference between Creator and creation. In Him all things in creation are held together. So that's the first element of God's, God's providence, His power by which He upholds uh, the universe and sustains it in its existence. 
this is why when, when we speak of, of natural laws, uh, we, we want to recognize as Christians, as, as any good scientist will also recognize, uh, that these, these laws are in fact merely observations about the way that the universe consistently works. They're not laws as such. They're not written in any book. There's no reason why they should have to exist that way. They just do. We observe uh, that they do. Uh, This is important as as we think about the disciplines of science, uh, that science does not explain uh, why the universe works the way it does. These laws don't explain things, they just describe uh, things. Uh, they, they, They can only explain why something works by appealing to other laws that appeal right back to them. Uh, this is important for us as Christians to understand. Uh, science has its, its ability to, to explain things within its certain assumptions. Science does not explain the universe. This is one of the fundamental lies of our culture, that science has explained the universe, and therefore we don't need God. Any good scientist will know that's not true. Uh, science observes it cannot ultimately uh, explain so that's the first part of this, this definition. God upholds the universe. The second part you see in that, in that definition from the catechism is that God also governs the universe, which is to say that God is, is sovereign over all that happens and directs all things for a certain purpose. God not only sustains them, He also directs everything that happens. Uh, The Lord Jesus says it in Matthew 10, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? Uh, God has His purposes in even the smallest things that happen. Or Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So God directs everything to the smallest detail for His purposes. Nothing happens except by His will. Uh, The Catechism, uh, just to help us out, gives us a list of just some of the things that God directs. Uh, Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, and of course the list could go on and on. Uh, Now, God does not just direct uh, the things of nature. So so that list mostly describes things of, of nature Uh, that God directs, uh, plants, animals, viruses, storms. God does direct these, but He directs more. He also directs nations and people for His his goals. So Proverbs 16, verse 9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Uh, God directs the, the plans and purposes even of people. Of free, we are free, of free human beings, yet we are under the sovereignty and the, and the purposes of God. Uh, again, in that sermon that Paul gave to the, the Greeks at Athens, uh, in Acts 17, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, God directs nations. God directs history for his purposes. Uh, Daniel 2, verse 21 as well. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is behind even these things. He's sovereign over people and nations. He's sovereign over human history. 
What that means is, God is also sovereign over your life and over my life, directing these two for His purpose. He is not a God who's far away, before whom we can live however we choose to live, and He is not involved. No, He's a God who's intimately near, guiding and directing even our own lives. He is a God from whose hands come my richest blessings and my greatest adversities. They're not from uh, by chance. They're not from happenstance. They are from the hands of my good heavenly Father. Now that conviction leads to some very difficult questions. Uh, uh, and, and we'll address those in a moment, but I want to first demonstrate how, how that conviction runs as a common thread through all of Scripture, uh, where we can recognize that this is fundamental to the Christian faith. I quoted earlier from Psalm 139, which clearly teaches that God directs every day of my life. In your book were written every day uh, that was in store for me. Uh, he, he, he says as well, even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. Or if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. See that leading, that governing, guiding. Uh, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, so the psalmist recognizes then that it's not just blessing that comes from God's hand, but also adversity. Uh, adversity cannot be blamed on the devil. Adversity comes from the hand of God. Uh, you, you think of Psalm 42 as well, uh, where the psalmist, at, at the, what appears to be the lowest point of his life, describes his sufferings, and he says to God, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, saying this, this turbulence, uh, this turmoil is coming from you, my Father, my God. He says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. And so he recognizes even his afflictions, the worst of them, are coming from the hand of God. Or as the psalmist says in, in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Our afflictions come from God. Now, that's a tremendously significant Confession, uh, to, to know that not only blessing, but also adversity are coming to me from my God. Uh, and that is, it is, as the psalmist says, precisely because of God's faithfulness that he afflicts me. Not because of God's maliciousness, not because of God's uh, capricious cruelty. No, because of God's faithfulness, because of God's love, he afflicts me. He afflicts me to do me good. And that conviction, we need to see this, that conviction runs right through all of Scripture. Now you think of Romans 8, verse 28, uh, where Paul, Paul writes, uh, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It is because God desires to do us good that He afflicts us. 
And that's also the, the conviction of Psalm 138, which we read uh, a moment ago. Uh, that's a psalm of David. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were in that psalm. David certainly had his, his fair share of afflictions. Uh, we know it's a prayer for deliverance. You can see that, in the, especially in the very last line, where David prays to God, Do not forsake the works of your hands. Uh, it's written in a troubled time. He, he says, uh, Though I walk in the midst of trouble... And in this psalm, David recognizes two very profound truths. I want to spend a moment just thinking about each of these. Uh, Two very profound truths in this psalm. Uh, Number one, he recognizes that in the midst of his suffering, God was in the process of exalting his own name. Uh, He he is explicit about that. In verse 2, he says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Uh, So he recognizes in that moment, in that time of trouble, that God was at work for the purpose of exalting his own name. It's very important to know this is God's highest good. This is God's highest purpose, to exalt his own name. And David praises God for it. It's not that David says, you've afflicted me to exalt your own name, but now have mercy on me because you're taking advantage of me. No, David says, I praise you because you have exalted your name. He sees this as something that is good. Uh, We need to know that the exaltation of God's name, God exalting His own glory, is something that is not only good, objectively good, but it's good for you, and it's good for me. Uh, Not that He exalts His name at our expense, but that He exalts His name through our afflictions for our good and for our joy. Uh, There's nothing, in other words, that we need more then God to exalt His own name, especially in our own hearts. There's nothing we need in our hearts more than God's glory to be exalted there. Uh, And for that reason, God afflicts us. So that's the first thing David recognizes in this psalm. God's at work here to exalt His own name, and it's good. It's what I need. Uh, Number two, David recognizes that Whatever the outcome of his affliction may be, which he does not yet know, that God was busy fulfilling his purpose for him, for for David. Uh, David recognizes, it's not my purpose for my life that will prevail, but thank God it is his purpose for my life. When we recognize uh, that truth, uh, when that is understood and and believed, it is radically life-changing to know that God is fulfilling His purpose for my life, and it's better than my purpose for my life. Uh, When we recognize that our afflictions, our pains, uh, our trials come to us from the hand of a good Father who's accomplishing a purpose for us that is better than the one that we have uh, for ourselves, a higher good, a higher purpose, that truth gives us, as it did for David, a steadiness uh, and a perspective and a courage that is absolutely supernatural. And you see that reflected in this psalm. There's a steadiness. He, He admits it's a time of trouble. I walked through trouble. And yet there's a steadiness, a perspective, and a courage that can only come from God. 
uh, to know that even the worst afflictions come from God precisely to accomplish what could not be accomplished in us any other way, uh, and that God's purposes are therefore good, that doesn't take away the suffering. It doesn't uh, make life easy, but it does radically transform the way that we deal with that suffering. Uh, So David, in in that day of trouble, he didn't pray first of all uh, for release and deliverance from the trouble. But he prays first of all, he he lifts his eyes to heaven and, and praises God that God is at work in his life to do something better for him than what he could ever do for himself. Now again, this does lead to to difficult questions. Uh, For example, we might ask, uh, if this is true, if if God is afflicting us for His good, for His purpose, uh, and He's sovereign in every way over our life, uh, does that mean that God is sovereign over sin? Over the sin that is committed by others against me? Can, Can I say that God is sovereign over that? Uh, think of the story of Joseph in, in Genesis 37 uh, through 50. Uh, Joseph, who, as, as many of us will know, was, was sold by his brothers into slavery. And, and those chapters tell of how Joseph uh, was cared for by God, even as he went uh, first from slavery, then to prison, and then ultimately to being exalted uh, at the right hand of, of Pharaoh. Uh, It's a story from beginning to end of God's providence in a very broken, very painful life. Uh, Genesis 45 tells, tells of the moment when he uh, was, was reintroduced to his brothers as he was reigning as administrator over Egypt. And it's in that moment, that, that, which is very much the key moment in that story, that he says to them, As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Think of that phrase. You meant it for evil, but God let it happen? No, God meant it for good. Is God sovereign over sin? Yes. Uh, What else can we say? Does that mean that God commits the sin? No. Uh, Does that mean that the people who commit the sin are not responsible for their sin? No. Joseph's brothers are held to account. Pharaoh, later on, uh, in the sins that he commits against God's people, is held to account, is judged for what he does. But it does mean that behind every sin committed uh, by evil people, with evil intentions, there is yet the purpose of God intending to work for good. And that's not true only of the evil done against Joseph. Uh, it's, it's not true only of the evils done against David uh, that, that remain untold in, in Psalm 138. It's true of all the evils that happen on earth, including the worst evil of all, which was the crucifixion and death of Christ, uh, the, the brutal torture of Christ, the only innocent man ever to exist, was done by evil people with evil intentions and meant by God for good. Uh, that's the point that Peter makes in Acts chapter 2 as he's speaking to the Jews. Uh, he says, uh, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Uh, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was sovereign over the worst atrocity, the worst evil that ever took place on the face of this earth. The only innocent man ever to have lived to have his skin ripped off and have nails driven through his hands and feet to suffocate and die on a cross. God was sovereign even then. And God used that for a greater good than has ever been accomplished uh, in human history to save many sinners. Now, it does raise, uh, it does uh, leave you with, with challenging uh, questions. How can God be sovereign over sin? Does that not make God guilty of, of the sin? And Scripture just gives us a resounding no. God hates sin. God detests it with His whole being, even while, this can only happen in the mind of God, even while He ordains it and even decrees it for our good. Uh, Psalm 105 uh, speaks of the cruelty of the Egyptians toward the people of Israel. And it says there uh, in Psalm 105 verse 25, He turned their hearts, that's the hearts of the Egyptians, to hate His people with the ultimate purpose of delivering them and demonstrating His power over them. God decreed evil and used it for good. Uh, In the early chapters of Exodus, uh, we're told that it is God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's the same Pharaoh that had innocent babies thrown into the Nile to drown. God hardened his heart while at the same time commanding him to let the people go. What do we do with that? Uh, That can only happen in the mind of a God whose ways are so much higher than ours. Uh, We recognize, and and Scripture teaches, Pharaoh was responsible for his own sin, as are you, as am I, as every one of us knows when we commit our sin. I did it. It wasn't anyone who made me do it. It was my free will that caused me to sin, and yet God was sovereign over it. Uh, Another one, God hates adultery. We all know this. It's in the Ten Commandments. Uh, And yet God says to David in in 2 Samuel 12, uh, verse 11, uh, He says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. God has His purposes. God hates adultery, detests it, commands us to stay far away from it, and yet God uses it for His purpose. It doesn't excuse Absalom, in that case, who was guilty of his own sin, and yet God is working behind it. And of course, God hated more than anything else the the abominable cruelty done against the Lord Jesus, and yet God decreed it for good. We can't escape the fact that God is sovereign, and we cannot let go of the fact that God is good. Now, the easy way out of this for many people is to to simply deny the existence of God altogether. Uh, This is probably the most common argument for for rejecting the existence of God, to say that there's just too much evil in this world for there to be a God. Uh, But here's the thing. Without God... There's no standard by which you can even denounce evil as evil. Uh, it, is, it is evil's opposition to God that makes it evil in the first place. If we take all the pain and suffering 
that's happened on this earth and conclude from that that God must not exist, what are we left with? We're left with a much harder question, which is, what makes any of that evil? Why should anyone believe that it is evil? Now, with no God as lawgiver, as judge, there's no such thing as evil. Just time and molecules and chance bouncing around. Some of them killing people, some of them loving people, and, and none of it with any significance. Uh, we, w- without God, there is no evil. But evil, as every one of us knows, and everyone in the world knows, evil does exist. And God teaches us in His Word that He is sovereign over it, even though He adamantly opposes it. And there's a point where we have no choice then but to conclude that the God who made us, the God who built this universe, is a God who's much wiser than us, whose ways are simply higher than ours. Now, there are several uh, things that can be said from Scripture, uh, things that are important as we work through that question. Uh, First of all, uh, we need to know that sin and the brokenness that comes from it is man's doing. God does not sin. Though God may decree evil things to happen, God does not do evil. Evil is man's doing. Uh, The reality is every one of us already knows this. Uh, Every time we sin, we know that it is us, is we ourselves who have sinned. Uh, Even though God is sovereign, uh, even though He, He decrees our choices, we know that we are responsible for our own choices. Uh, James 1 verse 13 uh, makes this clear. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And he goes on to say, uh, when you sin, those sins come from your own heart, from your own desires. And every one of us knows this. We cannot blame it on God. He's not the author of your sin, nor is he the author of anyone else's sin. We cause our own sin. Uh, Secondly, we need to understand that on this earth we have limited sight and limited knowledge. As we think about how does God allow so much evil to happen, we need to remember our sight is limited. Our perspective is, 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 is short. And we do not know all that there is to know. History is not over yet. Uh, and it's too early to say that God cannot possibly bring something good out of all the evil that happens here on earth. Uh, Romans 11 verse 34 asks the question, Who has known the mind of the Lord? And of course the answer is, Nobody who could know the mind of the Lord. God will work all things for good. This much He tells us. Uh, and, and, and maybe we can't possibly see how God could, could possibly bring good out of the evil that we've experienced, that we've witnessed, or that we know happens in this world. And yet if we say, There's no possible way, that God could ever bring good out of this situation, what we're saying is, I'm wiser than God. I know everything that can happen, and I've already decided what God doesn't know, that God cannot bring good out of this. Uh, We're saying, if I can't think of a good outcome, there must not be one. We're trying to be wiser than God. And, And are we wiser than God? God says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, which is uh, pretty high, a long long ways, uh, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
We need to recognize we've limited sight. We've limited knowledge. Uh, Thirdly and lastly, uh, this is especially true because we as human beings, as fallen human beings, uh, don't even have an accurate sense of what is objectively good and evil. When we say God cannot possibly bring good out of of this situation, uh, we need to recognize my own sense of good is in fact horribly skewed. Uh, What is truly good and truly valuable in God's eyes is not going to be what is, in my eyes, uh, truly best and good. Uh, The ultimate good that God is working towards, as David recognizes in Psalm 138, is the honor and glory of his own name. That's what God values and esteems as the highest good. Uh, Again, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. See, we as human beings, we tend to, to see human suffering as the worst evil imaginable. And we tend to see human happiness as the best good imaginable. But Scripture teaches, and, and one day we'll see it ourselves, that God's glory and God's worthiness of praise is yet a higher good. Uh, in fact, in Genesis 3, God cursed the world. God brought sin and suffering and death into the world uh, and all the human suffering that comes with that in response to Adam uh, Adam and Eve's disobedience and disregard for the glory of God. That's how seriously God regards our failure to see and praise His glory. So we need to recognize in this, our sense of right and wrong is very badly skewed. Uh, Some of the pain and the suffering that God brings into our lives is intended precisely to correct that perspective. To help us see, this is what is good, not what we thought was good. To direct us back to Him who is better for us than any pleasure we might lose out on here on earth. God can use pain for good to mature us, to bring us back to Him, to the point where we realize this is far better, that I should know my God and be near to my God, than that I should have all the pleasures of the world. Uh, So, Scripture may not answer all of our questions uh, to, to our satisfaction, but God's Word certainly does correct our wrong perspectives, certainly does show us how, how, how weak and how limited our perspectives can be, how skewed uh, can be the way we see things. Uh, and we need to recognize at the end of the day, we are still responsible, and every human being is, for their own sin. Now here's the thing. When we know that all things come from our Father's hand, uh, It is absolutely vital for our faith and our growth in our lives as Christians. Uh, As Christians, God, our we know we we believe and know that God, our Father, uh, is is working for our good. Uh, Romans eight twenty eight again. We know that for for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's that's all things. Uh, we can start with the list from the catechism, riches and poverty, health and sickness, uh, but it goes far beyond that. Uh, and, and note, not just that God allows these things to happen, God decrees them for our good. Uh, some trials, we can throw up our hands and ask, 
How can God possibly use it for good? What good can come from from God taking my child away? What good can come from the pain that I experience in my body? What good can come from sin that I've witnessed or sin that has been done against me? Uh, And and again, to be clear, uh, to say that God is sovereign is not to say that sin uh, is excused or that sinners are not accountable. They are, and hell exists precisely for that reason. Uh, Whatever sins are not covered uh, by the blood of Christ will be paid for forever in hell. And yet, what people have intended for evil, God is using for good, for the ultimate good of showing his worth to me and, and bringing me to himself as well as all those who love him. Uh, so the catechism asks the question, uh, how does this doctrine benefit us? What, what does it benefit us to know that God upholds all things and governs them? And it answers, with the question, or it, it answers the question with the words, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence that we need as Christians. We need this. Uh, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. Now that, that patience in adversity, that doesn't just mean waiting it out. It doesn't mean just enduring it till it's over. Uh, nor does it, it certainly does not mean becoming bitter in the midst of that adversity, which is surely the worst way to waste the suffering that God gives us. It means instead glorifying God and seeing his purpose even in the midst of that suffering. Those whom God has called to suffer in this life, which is all of us, to, to, to differing degrees, uh, those whom God has called to suffer the most are those whom He is making great. Uh, he is working on them, and, and, and they will grow through it, provided they do not waste the suffering that God gives them, uh, but rather use it as God intends it for His glory. Uh, So patience in adversity means drawing closer to God as he sends us adversity. Not fleeing from God, not denying God, but coming nearer to him when he gives us adversity. Knowing that he's not doing this without a purpose in mind, but he's doing this for my good. And the other side of this is being thankful in prosperity. If God can work evil for good, how much more can God not work good for good? First uh, Thessalonians 5, verse 18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If that's God's will for you in adversity, how much more, brothers and sisters, shouldn't, that be, uh, shouldn't we see that as God's will for us in prosperity? Do we give thanks for the good that God sends our way? This is where the doctrine of of providence uh, can be such a tremendous blessing, not just in adversity, but also in prosperity, that we do not take credit for the blessings we have, that we do not take for granted the blessings we have, but that we recognize all these blessings, all these joys, come from a Father who loves me and desires what is good for me. Uh, God's, uh, God's good for us can come through adversity, uh, but it can also come through the form of gracious and undeserved blessings, which he simply expects us to give him thanks for. Our Father rejoices to do good for us, as any father does for his child. He's a father that loves to give, a generous father. Uh, so the exhortation to, to, to all of us is this. If you believe 
that God is sovereign and He rules over the smallest details of your life, which He does, then begin with prayer in response to God. That was the Lord Jesus' exhortation in Matthew 7. He says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father uh, in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Come to your Father. If you believe He's sovereign over your life and over the smallest things in your life, come to your Father in prayer. Whether that's in prayer for help in adversity or prayer of thanksgiving in in prosperity. Let your life of prayer in the first place be a testimony to your confidence that your Heavenly Father loves you and cares for you and that nothing comes to you by chance. Use your prayers to give thanks to God in, in prosperity and use your prayers to cry out to God in adversity because He cares for you always. That's the words of, of, of 1 Peter chapter 3. Or, Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Ask Him that He would then use your trials for His good, as, as David does in his trials, uh, that, that God is using it to exalt His name and His glory. And believe and trust that He will do good for you, even through your trials, as you come near to Him. Amen.